0: I'm Kim, and welcome to Esther Twerk's podcast, You Can't Eat the Sunshine, for the month of September 2017. Join us this month as we talk with Cece DeVere, creator of the Frenchtown Confidential blog, who pulls back the velvet curtain to reveal the deep yet forgotten Gallic roots of the city of Los Angeles, the subject of her free Lava Sunday Salon and walking tour on September 24. We'll also visit with Nathan Marsak, star of the viral video series The Cranky Preservationist, to talk about the reopening of Angel's Flight Railway and the lost landscape of old Bunker Hill, the funicular's original home. So stay tuned.
1: You can't eat the sunshine, but you can make a beeline for the best of the coastline. a long-lost neighborhood called Hermina, between South Pass and Highland Park, Grand Central Park. It is divine, you can't eat the sunshine, but it's a gold mine.
2: Welcome, everyone. Thank you for listening to our podcast, You Can't Eat the Sunshine, for the month of September 2017. This episode, will have interviews with Cici DeVere. She's the author of Frenchtown Confidential, a blog about the history of 19th century French Los Angeles. And Nathan Marsak, better known as the Cranky Preservationist, our longtime collaborator on the Lava Sunday Salon series, Special Bus Tours, and the On Bunker Hill blog. Kim, as someone who's Nathan, who's almost had the tip of their index finger taken off by Nathan, do you want to tell us about the tip jar?
0: Oh, that's a nice little segue. You know, it's, it's true. I used to hang around with Nathan when, I, when we were young people, and he was a reckless soul, and he did slam a car door on my hand uh, while we were visiting Elizabeth Short's grave, the Black Dahlia's grave in Oakland. We could never have imagined this world that would come to be ours. But as Richard points out, there is a tip jar. If you if you like what we do and you like the notion of my hand being slammed in a car door and you'd like to contribute
2: by Nathan. By Nathan. <laughs> and you'd like
0: to contribute to our fund for gasoline, chili rena burritos, cups of tea, other good things on the road, we have a tip jar and we're always grateful for your contributions. They are Never obligatory. Always appreciated. Thanks for your support.
2: Very good, darling. Good. Okay, so let's, um, as always, get to closely watch trains. We're going to work our way backwards on this list. Okay, we're just going to keep it. Keep it. We're stir it up. Okay. On the topic of Nathan, uh, you have created a new persona for Nathan. The Cranky, I mentioned that in the introduction, the Cranky Preservationist, I feel that this is a brilliant branding ploy on your part, because um, the the Cranky Preservationist, so a lot I, it's really important that you did this, Kim, because so much of what we do is staying at the table in these incredibly difficult meetings with people that don't really want to talk to us at some level, but at the same time have been told they have to talk to us, And we're just, everyone at the table is just like trying to say as little as possible and just say, okay, we want to come back and make empathic, constructive statements and and solve this problem. And then there's Nathan.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Nathan is sort of the the flaming id of preservation. You know, you walk around with this guy in downtown Los Angeles and everything sets him off. And now it... (laughs) Nowadays, you have this little device in your hand that you can make a a high-resolution film with sound with. And so just in an impromptu fashion, I started filming Nathan, and I realized that these little minute-and-a-half to three-minute expressions of his rage and passion for the built environment and the way that it's being destroyed in front of our eyes is really powerful. And so we've been making more of these. There are eight of them now. Uh, The latest one, we actually got a tip from some L.A. Times culture reporters who were very unhappy to park in their brutalist parking garage south of the Times and find that the Tony Sheets mural had uh, gotten a brand new blue it was painted blue, a, a concrete building with concrete public art, and the history on one side of the Los Angeles Times, very important piece for the newspaper, especially now, and on the other side, the history of Los Angeles as a city. And uh, it looks absolutely ghastly, so we, you know, with this tip, took Nathan down there on a Sunday, and, and he was mortified. We made the video. And the nice thing about making um, cranky preservation videos on a Sunday is that when Nathan can't stand it anymore and has to run into the street and grab a clod of dirt and throw it at the denuded, destroyed landmark that has upset him so uh, he doesn't get hit by a car. And neither do I want to follow him. So we hope you'll watch these videos. They're on Facebook, on um, YouTube also, both on the Esoteric channel. And uh, they're nice pocket examples of just how terrible things are and, and how much it makes you feel better to say something.
2: A big part of my job of when you film these videos with Nathan is to somehow anticipate the next three steps of Nathan in any given of eight directions and make sure that if he does any of these one of eight trajectories, he's not hit by a car, and and you, of course, as well.
0: I know, And, and you do have the butterfly net just in case, and I appreciate all you do, Richard, because if it wasn't for you and the butterfly net, Nathan and I would both be in the booby hatch.
2: And, and, of course, I, I, I'm usually, I usually make cameos in the Cranky Preservation videos in, like, the corner of the frame, so my fans can look for me. Okay, so, um, Kim uh, Downey Chalet
0: not actually a chalet. I like to scream chalet, but they're actually called Cinderella houses. Um, They're they're this wonderful custom house style that was a giant sensation in the mid-50s, and um, the the family that designed them and marketed them was able to create uh, whole subdivisions. But the very first Cinderella house is in Downey. It is nearly entirely intact as it was built in the mid-1950s. I believe the slogan for these houses was, all you can lose is your heart. And um, it's looking for a new owner. And the nice thing is, uh, Downey Preservation, the, the Downey Conservancy, is just beginning to put forward a list of local landmarks the city is going to be recognizing. They were able to figure out that this house actually was number one um, in all of these Cinderella houses, which now spread all around Southern California. There's a lot of them in Anaheim. Cece DeVere, who's giving... Uh, well, who's the subject of this uh, podcast today, is is a big fan of the Cinderella houses. And because this is the age of social media and the house is now on the market. Word is out. Charles Phoenix has made a video. Everyone is sharing it socially. Yeah. So instead of just this wonderful house going on the market and someone who wants to live in Downey because the schools are good and they want to have a bomb shelter is going to pick it up and wreck the chalet style interior, it's probably going to experience a bidding war among preservation geeks. And that's what I want to see. It's really cool. If you're looking for a house in Downey, which it's a nice place to live, um, and you'd like to live in a Cinderella house, all you can lose is your heart, so look out for that.
2: Great. Very very good, Kim. Okay, so let's um, let's move to Hollywood and West Hollywood. Uh, we have uh, these, uh, this little co- these little chaplain cottages. Hollywood Heritage has applied for historic cultural monument status for them. They're on uh, Formosa, the Caslar the Village Courts.
0: Yeah, I'm not sure about the chaplain connection. It's been bandied right, okay. about for years. Right, sure. uh, well, it,
2: the, the HCM application will clarify that. I doesn't ideally. say anything
0: about it. But uh, colloquially in, in L.A. we always have these chaplain-related buildings. The funny thing is... Uh, I didn't realize this growing up until I started reading bios of Chaplin, but the reason there are so many Chaplin-associated buildings is that the guy was a horn dog, and he had women everywhere, very young women. So I think when people started calling buildings Chaplin buildings, it was sort of with a knowing wink. Oh, of course you yeah, well, you know, would have this storybook cottage uh, complex filled with teenage girls.
2: Right, and, and it actually, if you think about it in the long run, it really pays off instead of spending money on restaurants, you invest in real estate and keep your mistresses in them. And the mistresses come and go, but the real estate appreciates. And so it's just a much cheaper, more economic, and in the long run, wiser way to invest your time and money.
0: Right, and here we are. And Formosa is a street in the crosshairs. The building immediately to the north was Ellis. Uh, we'll be talking about the Ellis Act shortly. Ellis is when a property owner says, oh, I don't want to be in the uh, commercial real estate landlord tenant business anymore. I'm applying with the the state for the permission to get out of this business. And then what they often do is uh, turn the buildings into condominiums, tear them down and try to redevelop something larger, getting some concessions from the city in order to be able to build something that's legally too big for the site. Or what's been happening a lot and it's very destructive and it's contributing to our homeless crisis and our housing crisis is scumbag landlords to just throw everybody out and then start listing these units as Airbnb hotel rentals. And um, it's a little unclear exactly what happened to the very beautiful Norman-style apartment fourplex that was directly to the north, but everyone was thrown out. It was a little unclear what was going to happen. It got demolished rather suddenly, and then obviously this created a lot of concern about this lovely storybook cottage complex to the south so actually as we're recording this the cultural heritage commission is hearing the first arguments about this structure as a potential landmark i very much hope it will be a landmark and that it will continue to be housing for Angelinos as it's been since 1923 um, these places are special not just because they're old and we need to preserve them but because they're homes and their communities and we're all for that
2: very good, Kim. Let's pop over to West Hollywood. Uh, Neutra, Richard Neutra has this this great night. It's the the Chewy House, The Chewy House. It's a 1956, so this is really late Neutra. This is really his. It's in the home stretch. There's, they got everything honed down. It's this beautiful post beam structure. It's right there on Sunset Plaza, and it's this is uh, this is I I I don't I don't mean to, to speak of confidence, but I, 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 I've heard it from, oh, we talked to Alan Hess about this. Mm-hmm. Every, everyone in the Neuter circles is flipping out about this, and, and people really want to find a solution to this.
0: Well, this is such an important house, and the reason that it's so important, and, and this is going to be news to you, Richard, but you're going you're gonna to clutch your heart when you hear this. So the Choi house, not terribly well known, you know, they didn't entertain a lot, but this was a house built out of love. Um, Josephine Josie uh, had money from her family, and she married um, a painter, Bob Chewy, and she wanted to find the perfect home that would inspire his artwork. And what she ended up doing was working with Neutra to create this space that was intended to be a backdrop for their incredibly passionate creative love affair. She was a philosopher and a poet. He was a visual artist and an educator. And this is the house that, after many years, she finally was able to create as a a space for him to work in. And he uh, died while they were living there. She kept it to the end of her life. And then it gets even more exciting. Um, And I should mention, this house is absolutely at risk right now. Um, But she was a relative of Larry Fisher, Larry Wildman Fisher. The schizophrenic oh pop musician um, and Zappa associate who lived on the streets always was hanging out across from canters, very troubled young man, but but kind of sweet and wonderful and deranged. And I have a lot of people in my life who who were <laughs> helping Larry and had terrible, wonderful adventures because of that. And 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 Larry Fisher spent time up in that house because he was a, a, a treasured member of the family, and as artists they understood, you know, sometimes you're a little bit off the beam, but you're important. So this house has a lot of really only in L.A. history. It's architecturally distinguished. It's the only thing that was ever on that site. And sadly, um, the niece and nephew who inherited it I don't know how this happened. I mean, the house must have been paid off. But just a few years later, they are facing bankruptcy. And the uh, bankruptcy court is trying to sell the house at a teardown price with no photographs of the interior. Um, It, sadly, is on a fairly expansive piece of property. There's enough land there that you could park all of your fancy cars when you have all your friends over for the orgy. So... Hopefully someone who, you know, hears the story and cares about Neutra as a collaborator with artists in Southern California will be able to save this. And it
2: has $12 million.
0: Well, that's for too much money.
2: But that's, that's what people, I've, I've, I've heard around that that's people, that's what people, people, people are saying, if, if we can, if we can get 12, if we can get someone to put down $12 million, we can walk into bankruptcy court and just right. solve this problem. Like well,
0: you know, maybe the answer is that this is one of the houses that the Los Angeles County Museum of Art should be collecting. It has this wonderful art connection. And, you know, they could actually turn it into a little gallery of Bob Chewy's work and show other work from that. My, Mike,
2: Michael Govan thinks I'm famous. Maybe he'll listen to me. Well, maybe he'll listen
0: to Alan Hess. In any case, we're very concerned everyone's looking. If you happen to be up in the Sunset Plaza area, uh, try to peep up at it. It's a little hard to see, but from all accounts, it's a really special house, and uh, it certainly has a history worth preserving.
2: Okay, Kim, take a breath. Take that sip of tea, because you're the only one that can do this. Palisades Highlands, which is this... Well, it's interesting... Growing up, I thought the Palisades Highlands was a post-war development. Oh. It's just off of Sunset. Um, we're about to get into some really serious pre-war Spanish colonial revival preservation woes. Um, Palisades Highland is off of Highland Terrace? It's just off of Sunset, down down towards we'll the beach. Out. The the address is 14999 West La Cumbre Drive. It's the John L. Kennedy House. And the reason I'm asking you to take a breath, Kim, is Jerome Nash bought it.
0: Oh, yeah. Okay, well, so Richard just gave you the address. Go, go put it in your Googler. or you can look at a picture. We'll have some links here with the podcast as well. But this is a really important house. This is a 1930 Spanish colonial revival showcase house of the kind that you would see in Montecito by George Washington Smith. It's very, very, very important. It's incredibly prominent. It's on this wonderful corner site sprawling over, I think, what, three, three parcels. And Jerome Nash, who Jerome Nash is like the Donald Trump of Southern California real estate. It, it just one person can cause so much trouble. When Jerome Nash was a teenager, his British mother was a real estate investor, and she didn't know how to handle her kids, so she let them invest in real estate. And the next thing you knew, Jerome Nash owned apartments in Santa Monica, and he thought old people who rented his apartments were jerks. So he went to the state court and created a law to to allow him to go out of the rental business, the the rent stabilization business. The Ellis Act exists because Jerome Nash was a bitchy teenager. The the Ellis Act, which is destroying Southern California housing now, which is resulting in Airbnb taking over people's apartments, which is resulting in all of these demolitions. Uh, the, The Villa Carlotta being emptied out is this incredible Hollywood community in Franklin Village. This all goes back to this bitchy teenager who's now an adult guess I shouldn't call him a bitchy teenager anymore. He's a very prominent real estate investor. He is the owner, for instance, of the El Mirador in West Hollywood on Fountain, one of the most beautiful Spanish colonial revival high-rises in the world. That's Charles Lee, one of his rare commercial structures, the theater architect. And over five years ago, um, Mr. Nash became incensed because he was being held accountable by the city of West Hollywood, which... They've got their issues. They're not geniuses, and they're not great at preservation. But they were concerned that windows were falling out onto the sidewalk. And, and, and they wanted Mr. Nash to replace the windows with historically accurate windows. And somehow he didn't like the way they were talking to him and vice versa. And the <laughs> next thing you knew, he said, that's fine. I'm I'm ellising this building. I know all about it. After all, the law was passed when I was a bitchy teenager. It should be called the Nash Act, really, but Ellis was the um, legislator who worked with him. Oh, they must have had some great meetings. In any case, so uh, the El Mirador was ellis It's empty. There was some discussion about it being turned into an urban inn, which is like a some kind of <laughs> n- nudist hotel. Yeah. I, you know, there was a lot of stuff going back and forth. It's now been more than five years, which means if, if Jerome Nash wanted to reopen the building which I'm sure is in really lovely condition after five-plus years of complete vacancy with weeds growing up around it, Uh, he could go back into the rental business and charge market rate. He hasn't done so. This is all to get us up to speed that he bought this magnificent house in the Palisades Highlands. And um, knowing what he knows about preservation law and that the building was not landmarked, neighbors began to notice some really spooky stuff going on. Uh, This house is perfect was perfect. Was perfect. It, it it had wrought iron grills, it had tile to die for, including Art Nouveau and Art Deco bathrooms. It had lots and lots of Spanish tile up the staircases. Just woodwork, painted details. Ugh. Everything you want to see in a Spanish colonial revival mansion in the center of your community. So, you know, all that stuff had to be vandalized. People have gone inside. They've photographed it. We got a tip much too late, sadly, to be able to do anything. But we're happy to see. Today, as we are recording, the Cultural Heritage Commission is hearing about the house that is still a house. You know, interiors aren't really their business. And not everything has been destroyed. And the question is, is this house that since 1930 has sat on a very prominent corner and been part of the built environment of this beautiful neighborhood and uh obviously people who live there would like to see it remain so clearly a very large fabulous house that people would like to buy at market value and live in we shall see no one really knows what mr nash wants to do with it perhaps it is to be an urban inn i hope not we shall stay tuned
2: okay kim we're gonna we're gonna what
0: not that there's anything wrong with Getting naked with new people, Richard. I mean, I, I'm not a prude. I just care about buildings.
2: No one thinks you're a prude, darling. I can I can testify to that. You're not a prude. Okay, so so Kim, we we we, we got to bring this home. <laughs> um, angels' flight. Okay, angels' flight. Okay, so I'm gonna I'm gonna start on this. And, and you're just going to try and, and rein it in because we got to wrap this up and it's running again. Okay, so spoiler alert: after a after a four day closure, Monday, Tuesday, uh, three and a half. Hey,
0: Angel Flight is running.
2: Angel Flight's running.
0: So, oh, so what you're saying is our petition to the mayor actually worked?
2: Well, I'm I'm specifically saying last Thursday, a week ago,
0: uh-huh.
2: August 31, it reopened with a great deal of fanfare from President-elect Eric Garcetti. <laughs> and, uh, and 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 then it it ran with uh, in in fits and starts. Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. They decided to close, shut it down Sunday night at the end of the day, and fix some problems they're having with the rollers. The rollers are rollers which sit just below the cable on the tracks, and their job is to keep the cable from staying taut and in line and not getting out of line, which would cause lots of problems. The rollers were broken and chipped, and they just reopened. They had a walkthrough this morning with the Public Utilities Commission. They signed off. And so, Kim, you and I have a 3 o'clock meeting with Adele Yellen, chairperson of the Angels Light Railway Foundation. And at 4 we have a, a meeting with our new contact at ACS, ACS is the infrastructure company who is now the operator of Angel's Flight. And so this is just, we just have a full afternoon and we're just, the past is behind us. It's running again, and we're happy.
0: We're super happy. And obviously, Angel's Flight is under a microscope like no funicular has ever been. The PUC is not taking any chances, neither is ACS, neither is anybody. Angel's Flight is has been... Uh, disabled for almost as long as El Mirador has been vacant, and things happen. We've seen people walking on the tracks. We know people have walked on the tracks because of all of the terrible uh, vandalism that happened to the Angels Flight Rail cars. So, you know, those rollers have been sitting in the sun for a long time. You combine that with heat over 100 degrees and full cars all day and all night, this is what happened. That's just the way of the world. Uh, Everybody is taking this really seriously, and I know it's a disappointment, and and the fun, clever, smart-ass thing to do is to say, oh, we can put a man on the moon, but we can't get Angel's Flight running. Yeah, we can. We can get Angel's Flight running. It's it's weird technology, and it's just going to take a little bit of time to get it all smoothed out with new operators, but... I am not afraid to ride Angel's Flight. It is a safe conveyance. It is a beautiful well, you're, conveyance.
2: You're, you're going you're to ride it in about three hours, so that's good.
0: Cool. And maybe we'll kiss, like in that movie.
2: The last time we kissed in public, you got mad at me, so I'm not going to do that.
0: Okay. Well, maybe we'll act out a noir shootout. That's okay, a little okay.
2: more like this. Okay. 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 I'll shoot you. Okay. Um, so, um, I want to just quickly touch on upcoming events. Okay, because okay, we have to get to the interviews. So um, it's our 10th anniversary. What does that mean? That's not an upcoming event specifically, but that's sort of like this bucket for a lot of things.
0: Our being Esoteric, we've been together a little longer than that, but since uh, it's 10 years, May 2007, when we launched Esoteric, yeah, that's when the Cine family started. I think we're doing a little better no. than those guys. Um, no. Yeah. So 10 years on, we're doing some special events this year, and you can see the whole list of them on our website, and there's still some coming up. We've got a couple of talks in October at libraries in uh, Whittier and Sumlin-Tahunga. We've got special events tours like the LA Times bombing tour. Richard's got a birthday bus that's just been posted. You know, many special things happen, and if you want to be part of things that may never happen again, you definitely want to keep an eye on that calendar.
2: Good. Okay. We'll get to the birthday of in a minute. Okay. Upcoming events you need to know about. Let's get through some lava, upcoming lava salons. The last two of the calendar year, September and October. Okay. This month, September 24, C.C. DeVere interviewed today, this episode, we interview C.C. exactly about what she's going to be giving her salon on.
0: And you'll listen to maybe five minutes, and you will hit pause, and you'll go over and sign up because you don't want to miss your chance to attend her Lava Sunday Salon.
2: She's the best. Mm-hmm. I adore her. Um, so so she's going to talk about 19th century French Los Angeles, specifically with a focus on downtown, because, because this whole point of the salon is to meet in Grand Central Market, we set up the slide projector and screen and we show some slides of buildings that don't exist anymore or environments downtown that don't exist anymore and then we pack everything up and we walk over to these locations and talk about them and so we're gonna walk over to the plaza and we're gonna have lots of special guests and we're super excited and we certainly hope you can you can join us it's free free with registration and so just go ahead and sign up for that our last lava sunday salon of the year is gonna be in October, uh, Sunday, October twenty ninth, which is the day after Grand Central Market celebrates its one hundredth birthday. No, and, it's
0: the same
2: day. Oh is it the same day? It's okay, great. Um, so um we're super excited and um It's going to be really fun. It's going to be about civic art in the civic center. So once again, we're going to be pairing up with the Los Angeles County Arts Commission, Claire Haggerty, who is um, the director of public art for that commission. What?
0: She's great. And and I just love working with a county organization that is really dedicated to uh, cataloging and caring for its cultural artifacts. It's such a refreshing sort of experience. Yeah.
2: Yeah. It, it 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 is. We're super we're super excited. So so it's so what are we going to do? So we're we're going to um we're going to talk about public art. Um just public art all I'm not even going to get into it. It's everything you wanted to know about really great art in the Civic Center. Claire's going to take us by the hand, lead us down the path. We're going to have lots of special guests, which we will announce as the date gets closer. I'm Because uh, I have a bunch of people that are like, oh, yeah, that shouldn't be a problem. Mm. I'm not going to tell you yes yet. And I, that's fine.
0: No, you should believe Richard. He's not just... just uh talking out of his hat. He's not even wearing a hat. There's some really great people who are going to be there. And it's not just about public art. It's about its context within some really cool architecture. So if you care about uh, downtown civic architecture, which is in some cases kind of endangered. Hello, Parker Center. Um, You definitely want to join us for the October Sunday Salon.
2: Perfect. Great. Okay. Uh, Bus tours that I want to point out. Um, At the end of the month... at the end of the month, uh, right b- the day before the salon, is my Los Angeles Times bombing tour, which Mike Digby is the guest host for. Mike Digby is a, the f- a former arson investigator with the Sheriff's Department. He basically was the lead investigator, bomb investigator, for um, about 15 years. He was in the arson division, I think, 24 years. Uh, amazing guy. We've done crime labs with him. He's one of my favorite people in the world. This is a tour about. Well, I'll let you talk by the end of the podcast. It's about the LA Times bombing in in October of 1910, and it's about how this case was solved, and it's super important. We've got a crime lab coming up in November that Mike is also participating in. Sunday, November 5th, um, we're going to have a forensic science a forensic science workshop at the Hertzberg Davis Forensic Science Center at the Criminalistics Department, which Professor Don Johnson heads up. And the title of the event is SLA to DNA. (laughs) So, Mike Digby and our good friend Brad Schreiber, who is an author and does our Symbionese Liberation Army bus tour with us. Which is coming back. Which is coming back. Um, Brad and Mike are going to do a breakdown of the 1974 SLA shootout on West 54th Street, uh, which resulted in the, the... The death of of most of the members of the SLA in that house. Really interesting case. And then we're gonna have Beverly Kerr, who's uh, a lead uh, DNA forensic, a lead forensic investigator for the sheriff's department, talk about some of her favorite cases, which are super interesting and gory, and have great problems of equivocation, equivocation of death, and all the great things that forensic investigators like to like to futz about and and blow our minds. So. Get on board for that. And I think Kim I think I'm gonna let you make sure I haven't forgotten anything and then we're gonna to get to the I'm gonna to start to introduce the interviews.
0: Well I should just say when you say get on board, that's not get on board the bus. These happen at Cal State Los Angeles at the teaching crime labs. So these are um,
2: right. about board. twenty
0: bucks less than a bus tour and we do them quarterly. They're fundraisers for the criminalistics graduate department, so you can help contribute to the development of cutting-edge crime science. And it's really incredible that the lay public gets to attend these things. But what I keep hearing from our presenters is, what a great audience you have. We're used to presenting to law enforcement people who actually would rather be anywhere else. (laughs) So it's fun for everybody. You get to go deep. And if you're doing research on any of these topics, you can't do better than to just corner these brilliant people at the coffee break share a donut with them and ask them all your burning questions
2: this actually really happens like oh, yeah. like people in the audience like anyway okay all right thank you okay so so we're going to get to the we're going to get to the interviews at hand i'm going to interview my interview with cc is first so i will introduce her second okay nathan is the second interview so i will now introduce nathan marsack otherwise known as the cranky preservationist so Kim, I guess, really, this is a really good opportunity to mention that Nathan is the reason that we reconnected.
0: Yeah, it's all Nathan's fault, so the least we can do is give him a viral video series. We um, all went to college together. We were all uh, undergraduates in uh, art, art history. history, art history at UC Santa Cruz, and we were not... Buddies, because I liked Nathan, and Nathan liked me, and Nathan and you were friends, but I hated you, Richard, and you yep. hated me, yep. but Nathan has always been the golden thread in our lives, and so um, when he and got... you
2: introduced him to his second wife. I Yes. That went
0: well. Um, when I reconnected with you, it was because his first wife had thrown him out and That's you were right. taking him to a party to, right. k- to get him out of the house. I was there, too, and it's all been magic and preserving buildings ever since. And Nathan remains uh, that golden thread. But now we don't hate each other. We all we all just collaborate in hating Nathan.
1: Okay.
2: I, and And Nathan is an incredibly gifted historian of old Bunker Hill. And so we're going to talk to Nathan Marsak, who is an important contributor to our blog on Bunker Hill. He's an important contributor to our Lava Sunday Salon series. He speaks three, maybe four times a year. He's, he does really interesting work. He's very gifted. He's the cranky preservationist. I consider him a, a brother. I will say that on, on tape. I consider him a brother. He's very, very, very dear to me.
0: We don't really hate him. I'm just being a wise guy.
2: So, so I'm super excited. It's, uh, we actually tried to interview Nathan, you know, like five years ago, four years ago when we started the podcast, but all he would do is talk about pornography on the internet. <laughs> and so we couldn't use that interview.
0: <laughs> well, that'll be the outtakes. <laughs>
2: the whole thing was an out. Anyway, so it's it's he's he's really happy that after, you know, his his scorched earth policy of 5 years has expired. We can interview him again. And so we'll we'll get to him second. And first our first interview is is with CC Dever and as as we've been mentioning, CC is author of the the blog French Town Confidential. This is a brilliant exploration of lost 19th century French Los Angeles, all of Los Angeles. C.C. is giving the Lava Sunday Salon this month, September 24th. Uh, She's going to specifically focus on 19th century French downtown Los Angeles. Uh, Her talk will be like 45 minutes, and then we're going to walk over to the plaza and just roll up our sleeves and get to work and all the good French heritage in the plaza, the birthplace of Los Angeles. So without any further ado, let's take it away with my interview with C.C. Devere. Cece. Cece, I'm here with you. We're at the Colburn Cafe at the Colburn School, 2nd and Grand, atop of Bunker Hill. Please properly introduce yourself, and we'll get to the work at hand.
3: Hello, I'm Cece Devere. I write the blog French Town Confidential. I am a fourth-generation Angeleno, and I am primarily of French extraction.
2: Perfect, which leaves you preeminently qualified to talk to us about French Los Angeles and your blog. So we agreed we were going to start with the beginning, and we can start with the beginning of French Los Angeles or your blog either, but let's jump in somewhere and get started.
3: Uh, Well, let's begin with the birth of the blog. I'd heard previously that there had been a French community in old L.A. I read it in passing in an old book. I didn't give it a lot of thought until a few years ago when we were cleaning out my grandmother's house. And we found an old Chinese restaurant menu from the 30s or 40s when her family first came here. I looked up the address on Google Maps to see if the building still existed. It wasn't. It's part of the playground at Castellar Elementary School now. And I noticed something across the street. A Joan of Arc statue on the grounds of the Pacific Alliance Medical Center. What's Joan of Arc doing in Chinatown? I did a little research and come to find out... The French hospital, established in 1869, had been the French hospital for 125 years before becoming the Pacific Alliance Medical Center in 1989. It was still called the French hospital when I was born, and I never knew anything about it. My family never knew. It was a complete shock, and I started doing some research. I picked up some rare old books, including one about the French in L.A. that was published in 1932. I've been reading and digging and poring over old newspapers and city directories ever since, and I am still finding out how deep the rabbit hole goes. I haven't hit bottom yet.
2: Okay. And, and just to be a little, a little selfish, we'll talk about me for a second and how you and I connected, um, which was over uh, the People Mover Survey. Basically, Metro did a survey of around Union Station in the 1980s. And that's, and I sent that to you because yeah. we, we we were in we were in email correspondence about the intersection of Alameda and Aliso, which which had about five or six hotels. Do you want do you want to talk about that intersection just for a second?
3: Well, Alameda and Aliso was sort of the hub of. French community for quite a long time. There's not a lot to see there now, but <laughs> uh, there's not a lot to see there now. But there were, over the years, about a dozen different hotels catering to new French immigrants, mostly Basques, not exclusively. There were a lot of French-owned businesses. Uh, let's see. The consulate wasn't too far away. A lot of the big players in the French community lived there. And it's
2: Perfect, yeah. And, and it was down the street from the plaza. So let's just go. The plaza, the birthplace of Los Angeles. How was how this at an important part of French, los, French 19th century Los Angeles?
3: People think of the plaza, they think of the settlers from Mexico who founded Los Angeles, and that's not wrong. But in the 1820s, the first Frenchman arrived. His name was Louis Boucher. He had been a Napoleonic soldier, and he uh, took a little mercenary job for Mexico, fighting against Spain, and they paid him in land. Mexico had a lot of land, but not a lot of money after the war. And before too long, he drifted into Los Angeles and uh, began growing grapes. And there is a Bauché Street, not too far from Union Station.
2: Uh, the Bauché Street, actually, the, the Sheriff's Department took over that whole tract, and it's now Men's Central Jail.
3: Yeah. Uh, yes, yes, it is. He was an entrepreneur and a soldier, so I don't know what Bauchet would think of that today.
2: <laughs> um, do you want to talk about? Um, is there any? So let's let's look. Let's. Um, we were we're at the plaza. We were looking looking to the east to Alameda. Let's look to the west. Maybe there there was a oh the the mayor's house, right? The, the mayor's Adobe is nearby. Yes.
3: Uh, Joseph Masquerel lived in an old adobe house off of, on the plaza for many years. It's uh, it's no longer there. The site is now a parking lot adjoining Olvera Street. I'm pretty sure I've parked in it. It's very sad. <laughs> um,
2: let's see. Let's um, anything? Now we're you're going to be giving a, a salon for us at the end of this month, and we're going to talk about all of this. We're going to go look at some stuff. Um, is there anything? in downtown that ex- that's beso- let's, let's consider Chinatown separate but let's let's look south of the plaza to downtown the Civic Center is there anything in the Civic Center that, that shows us remnants of this lost 19th century French Los Angeles
3: well we have to talk about Pershing Square okay <laughs> Beaudry was a French Canadian developer he uh, and his brother Victor were both very active in real estate in LA they made huge fortunes just buying and selling land, including the land we're on right now. This was part of the Baudry tract. This was all houses.
2: We, we are at second and grand on Bunker Hill.
3: Yes. Uh, they built Bunker Hill. They built Angelino Heights. They established the most successful streetcar line in city history. And there was one parcel of land that wasn't really well suited to building. It was marshy, and it kind of smelled. And Prudent Baudry got the idea to drain it and make it into a park. It changed names over and over and over.
4: Uh, it
2: was first named um, the Plaza Baja. But I, I, it was first, first the Plaza Baja. Then Central Park? No. Am I missing one? Central
3: Park, Los Angeles Park, uh, St. Vincent's Park.
1: Very good.
3: Very good. Anyway, at the end of World War One, I, a... Uh, decision was made to put a, to rename it Pershing Square and put a statue of General Pershing in the park. And vice chair of the committee was a French pharmacist called Lucien-Napoleon Brunswick. Now, we've never heard of him now, but Brunswick Pharmacy was uh, folded into Amerisource Virgin. They're still around. And Brunswick had a chain of pharmacies in every western state, in Hawaii, in China and Mexico. Very, very, very successful pharmacist. <laughs> Not bad for someone who made pills for a living. And Brunswick Square, incidentally, is in Little Tokyo, and the Brunswick Building is right off the plaza. There's yes. a lot of, br- of uh, Lucy and Brunswick around. Right.
2: The, the Brunswick Building is, uh, is now, uh, the county's taken that over. Yeah. That was actually, speaking of the Sheriff's Department, uh, from 1950 to 1970, the Brunswick Building was a crime lab for the Sheriff's Department and a jail
3: looking at it you'd never guess that.
2: (laughs) I didn't believe it for years we had to actually go go talk to someone that worked in that building it's pretty amazing. Um, So let's see uh, Chinatown let's let's go north of the plaza to Chinatown and and so you started talking about the Joan of Arc statue at the Pacific Alliance Hospital so why don't we pick up that thread with the old French Hospital.
3: Well St. Vincent's is the oldest hospital in the city it's still kicking but hospitals only have so much capacity, and not everybody necessarily wants to stay in a Catholic hospital, although the Daughters of Charity, to their credit, didn't turn people away. Anyway, the French basically shrugged their shoulders and decided to take care of their own medical needs. So they hired a doctor, they started saving money for a hospital, they bought four plots of land, and by 1869 they had enough money to start building the hospital actually ran out of money during building and had to open the completed ground floor and the second floor did not have a roof. They added it later when they'd raised some more money. I guess they figured it didn't matter because it doesn't rain very much here.
1: <laughs>
3: oh, it's true. I believe you.
2: So um, is there anything else in, in Chinatown that we can dwell on before we, we jump up to the San Fernando Valley?
3: As a matter of fact, there's a really interesting story concerning some houses on Bernard Street. Now, Jean Bernard owned a brickyard nearby. He was a grant deed holder. He was French, of course. And uh, Philippe Fritz, who was a carpenter, built three houses side by side for his family. One of the houses is gone. It was moved to Hollywood. and It's not there anymore either. The other two houses currently house the Chinatown Historical Society. Right, right, right. right, right. If you've seen La La Land with uh, Mia on her phone to Sebastian leaving a message, she's walking opposite the Fritz houses. I was so sad that they didn't pan the camera around. That would have made a great shot. But that's where she was. Let's see, Chinatown, Felipe the original. It's changed locations a few times. Felipe was French, of course. Right.
2: So uh, let's linger on uh, Felipe. I I love Felipe. So this is... Current location, it moved because of the freeway construction. So in 46, 47, they were... The freeway came in in 49, so a couple years before that it moves. Before it moved to its current location, it was... Mm. Current
3: location... It was quite a bit further into Chinatown. I'd have to check my map. I've, I've got every location of Felipe's known on a map, along with everything else. I have 400 sites pinpointed, and I'm still going. Uh, anyway, it's currently in Chinatown. My parents used to go on dates there. You can spit on Union Station from there. And that, of course, is where Jean Louis Vines grows grapes. Yes.
2: Yes. Vine Street. Yes.
3: Jean Louis Vines was the father of French migration to California. Louis Bachet was the first. Jean-Louis Vines opened the floodgates. He left France due to political pressure and money issues, uh, spent some years in Hawaii, drifted into L.A., decided the L.A. River would be a good place to grow grapes, and did exactly that. He also grew all kinds of things, but he was from Bordeaux. Grapes were a specialty. Anyway, about ten years after he'd left France, his sister decided to send her youngest son to... California to find out if her brother was even still alive. So Pierre Sansavan, who is 19, 20 at this point, uh, winds up in San Pedro, gets into L.A., finds his uncle, and it turns out Uncle Jean-Louis is doing very well as a vintner. So Pierre ends up staying. Pierre's older brother Jean-Louis comes over later. Jean-Louis was an engineer. And the brothers later took over their uncle's vineyard. They, also, they ran into the crown trying to make champagne and failing at it, but that was the first commercial vineyard in the state and Pierre actually made the first wholesale wine sale in California history wow. no one knows that wow. everyone thinks norcal but the wine industry got its start in LA oh.
2: yeah there are uh, there are grapes out in Riverside that are there are vines that are 120 easily 120 over 120 years old yeah
3: there's still grape spring grown up at George Lem barn up in Glendale yeah. there'
2: So, just before uh, do you want to give us a sense then of the French and viticulture in Los Angeles from about eighteen twenty to the end of the nineteenth century?
3: Uh, well, El Aliso that was jean louis vine's uh, vineyard, right. and then it was later Savan Brothers. that was the big vineyard in town
2: and this is basically the intersection of Alameda and Aliso, just a little a little east of Alameda on Aliso
3: yes that was the big one. They sent wine all over the world. They sent some of it back to Europe. They sent some of it to President Buchanan. Uh, Let's see, the Vachet brothers were in the wine business as well. Uh, Louis Bauché tried his hand at wine. He didn't get into wholesale, as far as I know. Uh, When the Sansevan brothers lost all their money, uh, Jean-Louis wound up managing the vineyard at Rancho Cucamonga. He was a very good vineyard manager. They kept him on, even though it changed hands a few times. Uh, Pierre wound up back in Northern California, inventing a steam-powered stemmer crusher.
2: <laughs> Very good. Um, so, let's, um, let's move to San Fernando Valley. Yes. Okay, so, uh, go.
3: So, a lot of L.A.'s French history has been erased from existence, but you can find a lot of it in the San Fernando Valley. Okay. If we start in Calabasas and head east, we can start with the Leonis Adobe Ranch Museum. Miguel Leonis was part of the rogues gallery. He was a bad guy. <laughs> Terrorized the entire western valley. But his house is still standing. Supposedly John Carradine was the last person to live in it. And it was nearly pour- torn down for a parking lot in 1962. But luckily the neighbors rallied and saved it. And,
2: it, and soon after became Historic Cultural Monument Number 1. Yes. yes.
3: So the house is still standing, Uh, the Plummer House uh, serves as the Visitor Center. Uh, Miguel's wife Espiritu was good friends with Maria Cecilia Plummer, so that's very fitting. Uh, Let's see, Uh, their daughter Marcelina died of smallpox, Uh, Miguel brought his nephew Jean-Baptiste over from France, he left seminary school to become the heir apparent, and then Miguel died in a freak uh, accident in the Cahuenga Pass, so that didn't quite happen. After a lot of legal fighting, Espiritu got the house. Jean-Baptiste went on to co-found the city of Vernon with the Furlong brothers. They were Irish. Oh, yes. 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 There's a reason Vernon's only restaurant is the original Basque kitchen. That was Jean-Baptiste's pet project. It's a pity they took out the 1960s interior, though. We're so upset about that. Yes. Okay, moving further further east, there's Amistoy Avenue, after the Amistoys. They were one of four French families to own Rancho Los Encinos. Los Encinos State Historic Park is still with us. That is the original adobe and a house that the Garnier brothers built to house their employees. There were four French families. The Garniers were the first. Uh, the Garnier block and Garnier building are still standing on the plaza. But
2: Amistoy. The Amistoy block is now where City Hall East is. But this is just the Amistoy building downtown. It was just one of the most beautiful buildings. And it went down about 1957, 58. Um, the final scene of my favorite Sterling Hayden film, Crime Wave, is Sterling Hayden in front of the Amistoy building. So everyone watch Crime Wave and remember the Amistoy building. And I, and I apologize for interrupting you, but I just, I, I love that. I, I, I love that building.
3: Oh, I, I've seen the pictures. I get it. <laughs> so the Amestoyes raised sheep there and uh, supposedly planted most of the silk oak trees that are still on the property. There's a pond on the property that the Garniers built to collect uh, flow from spring on the property. You can't really tell up close, but if you look at it from an aerial view, it was originally in the shape of a Spanish guitar. For the Basque country. The Garniers were Basques. The Amistois were Basques. Uh, Let's see, Juanita Amistoy married Simon Gless. He was another French Basque. The Gless house in Boyle Heights is still with us. It's a boarding house, last I checked. And Simon Gless apparently had his fill of all the heat in the valley one day when he came home with a block of ice and it already melted. (laughs) (laughs) So he sold the house to his father-in-law, Domingo Amistoy. Don Domingo. So he snapped it up, and Amistoy's lived on the land until it was subdivided after the war. It's now Encino and Sherman Oaks, Mm -hmm. and in between there was another uncle, a French Basque, owned it for a while. So that's
2: that's that's an okay. So the valley has an impressive French pedigree. So um, what's what's next? You keep you keep at what's what's your what's something. You're, you're able to discuss in public publicly what's what's something you're just getting your teeth into
3: uh, just getting my teeth into well I haven't tackled Remy Nadeau yet because I know I have a lot of digging to do he is the most important Angelino that no one remembers today
2: I'm gonna blow your mind we know the owners of Sara Gordo yes you have direct unfettered access to Sara Gordo what you're looking at me Kim you don't believe it's true Okay, Yeah. Sarah Gordo. Okay, we're going to go.
3: Oh, absolutely. Hmm. I've got to go out there. And many people don't know this, the 20-mule team that you see on Borax boxes began with Remy Nadeau. But those mules originally hauled silver bullion to San Pedro, where it was shipped to San Francisco to be refined. Then a contract dispute got Remy to start schlepping Borax to and from Nevada instead. So that is the birth of 20-mule team Borax.
2: Um, and, and we sort of, you and I, of course, discuss Cerro Gordo because we know it really well. Do you want to explain to people why I interrupted you to tell you I'm going to get introduce you to the owner of Cerro Gordo, why Cerro Gordo and Rani Nadeau are connected and why this is so important to Los Angeles?
3: <laughs> uh, well, the Cerro Gordo mines were owned in part by Victor Beaudry, who was Prudence Beaudry's youngest brother. I've mentioned Victor before. Uh, he set up a shop in Inyo County, got into mining, partnered with Remy Nadeau, who got to start borrowing $600 from Prudent to, borrow, to buy some mules and a wagon. And Remy started the biggest freighting company in the history of the western United States. Entire towns sprang around as freighting stations. And about 20-some percent of everything that flowed through the port of L.A. in the 1860s, 1870s, came through Remy's Freighting Company. No one knows
2: that. And and the, this, the silver from Cerro Gordo, this became... And this, this, when you said it went to San Francisco, it went to the, the, the mint, in the, the federal mint in San Francisco.
3: Yes, it had to be refined and made into coins. L.A. was still kind of the sticks at the time. But, so, but this is a
2: big part of the, the, the silver standard in, in this country. It came out, right? So this is a lot to boast of. Um... I love Ryan I mean go so much. He's so great. Victor Victor Heights. We we can't quite see. I can't quite see Victor Heights from Ryan. But if, if the Music Center would disappear for a second, I could see Victor Heights, which is basically Sunset and and uh, and Beaudry. Yes. So do you want? And and at the current site of Victor Heights is the William Pereira Metropolitan Water District Building, which is a project of ours, which we will not get into. But do you want to tell us about before the Metropolitan Water District building was there, there was a hospital there? Do you want to tell us? Oh. We'll talk about that next time. Don't worry. We'll do that next time. I just I get excited about the Metropolitan Water District. Cece, let's wrap this up. Tell us... Uh, okay, so, Randy Nadeau, huge guy. Nadeau Hotel was the first hotel with elevators in Los Angeles. Uh, first in spring, where the fourth Los Angeles Time Building currently sits, um, I'm excited. We're gonna have a lot of. Are you excited, Coop? We're gonna rent the. We're gonna rent the four wheel drive and go to Saragordo. Okay. Uh, tell us one last thing you want to talk about. Just something that we've forgotten. Your favorite thing. Your favorite thing this today.
3: Ah. Uh, well, that's quite a tall order because I have so much left to do and so <laughs> much to talk about. <laughs>
2: Tell us about you, tell us the URL of your blog, which of course we're going to have on the website. But just tell us tell us about where to find your blog and, and all of that.
3: FrenchtownConfidential.blogspot.com.
2: So, uh, last Saturday of September, the twenty fourth, you're giving, I think it's the twenty fourth Sunday, yeah, Sunday the twenty fourth, last Sunday of September, you're giving this talk. It's at two p.m. Grand Central Market, which has its own French history in the building. The uh, uh, two o'clock, two to five, you'll talk for like 45 minutes, an hour, and then we'll start to walk. And we're going to, right now, we're going to figure out a bit of that walk right now. So um, is there anything else you want to tell us?
3: Just keep reading the blog. One story leads to 10 more. I've got material for years.
2: Cece, thank you so much.
3: Thank you. This is Richard's
0: mother, and I'm here at Whole Foods in Westwood, and you're listening to You Can not Eat the Sunshine. And remember to eat your vegetables.
2: Nathan, Nathan, I'm here with you. We're at the Colburn School Cafe, just a couple hundred feet up from the Angels Flight Station House, and uh, it is uh, it is Labor Day, September 4th, and Angels Flight is not running after its um, after its illustrious reopening just a couple of day, uh, three day, three days ago, sorry, four days ago. Thank you. Uh, I want I don't want I want I don't want to dwell on that. We'll come back to Angels Flight in a minute. Um, I want it to, because it's, you can never do this enough, I want you to explain to us, as one only can without images, I want you to explain to us this buckle that was Bunker Hill on, in, in the middle of downtown Los Angeles. Most of it is gone, but I want you to try and explain to us this 19th century development just to the West of 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 downtown, just in the western edge of downtown Los Angeles. I want tunnels. I want I want I want uh, all the tunnels. I want not just the tunnels that are still here, but the tunnels that are gone. Broadway, Hill Street. Um, I want I want retaining walls. I want at the end of this section of your interview, I want people to say, "Wow! I really feel like I have a better sense of of this incredibly complicated topography that was Bunker Hill." And why didn't they keep the retaining walls and build that, that pedestrian bridge across 5th Street, right? Hmm. Okay, so go.
4: <sighs> doggy.
2: <laughs> yes, Nathan. There's a dog. Oh,
4: sorry, I, I like doggy. There's a dog. Just, I'm just, I'm just right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> yes, Nathan. There's let's, a dog. Hey, let's talk about Bunker Hill. So we're sitting here. What are we, we're on the uh, the 200 block of uh, South Grand, um, roughly where the uh, Frontenac apartment building used to be. Um, Melrose would have been right over there. The Dome uh, was over there. Uh, sort of, you know, Third and Grand is right behind me over there. Sort of ground zero of, of Bunker Hill. And to give people an idea as to what Bunker Hill was like, they should sort of try and consider everything that the city or cities attempt to make neighborhoods into now. That sort of new urbanist ideal of walkability, um, low car ownership, uh, you know, Mixed-use developments. Everything was, you know, residential upstairs, and you know the the drugstore and and what have you downstairs. Um, the common conception of Bunker Hill, of course, I mean, common currency, common courtesy, is that it's it was all hopheads and grifters and B girls because that's what the LA Times taught us. That's what we learned in the noir pictures. Um, you know, starting all the way back in the early 1930s, all the way up into when there was very little left of Bunker Hill. One of the greatest shots of Angel's Flight. Uh, Gordon and I were talking about this uh, earlier. This is one great shot where you fly off into nothing right above Third Street. It's from a 1965 Glenn Ford picture called uh, The Money Trap. Right. Yeah. So that's how that's how everyone got there. Everyone sort of got their start with Bunker Hill, looking at you know like Kiss Me Deadly and these black and whites, and it was all supposed to be sort of smelly and run down. And there were certainly Places of Bunker Hill, again, as you said, it's a very complicated topography. Uh, So the sort of the the flats, the other side of the 3rd Street Tunnel, around like 3rd and Flower, 3rd and Hope, it got a little shifty down there. Uh, That was a heavy narcotics area. Um, North of 1st got a little rough. um, Not violent rough, but it was... uh, uh, predominantly, that was a Hispanic neighborhood, and so things were even in worse disrepair than uh, than normal. The Clay Street area, famously, we know from the movie *The Exiles*, um, the area around Olive Court uh, was a little downtrodden. But by and large, you know, this was the sort of narrative that we got fed by the Times, by the sort of the black and white images that we got, uh, the CRA in uh, conjunction with the Housing Department, the famous photos of. You know Leonard Nadell, he was trying to be an urban reformer, and these urban reformers go out and they try and show Bunker Hill at its worst because God bless him uh, they're attempting to tear the place down because the idea was it was all going to be, you know, wiped clean and in this sort of, you know people think that the, the Bunker Hill demolition effort goes back to the 50s, goes back to the 1930s, because it was going to be a sort of Corbusian style, you know, high rise city of these tower blocks, it was going to be terrible uh, much in the way that people bemoan the demolition of Chavez Ravine, and we were going to build this amazing like housing development that would have been terrible. Also, uh, b- but I digress. What we know about Bunker Hill now is a little more sophisticated because we talk to people like Gordon Patterson. We see some of the color images that are coming out. Um, it was a place of uh, mostly pensioners, or as Gordon's pointed, you know, the, the elderly poor, the urban elderly poor, and it was a lot of you know you'd hear the. The cooing of the pigeons just over the like the sort of sort of hum of the downtown area below. So it was quiet. Um, the reason it got you know, Prudent Beaudry, uh, French Canadian, comes here, has a dream, builds it in the first place because you get these wonderful breezes up here. The air is better, uh, and you know so it was basically it was the smell of stew and the sound of opera coming from you know the the New Grand Hotel at Third and Grand from the old lady there who's like playing her her records and there's a Terrific For anyone who wants to sort of really get the feel of old Bunker Hill, uh, the famous movie The Exiles about Native Americans on Clay Street comes in a deluxe uh, DVD. Kent McKenzie, who made The Exiles about five years earlier in 1956, made a picture called called Bunker Hill 1956. And, uh, you know, they talked to like the old shoemaker and the old doctor and the old lady who makes like little clay figurines of like the weirdest looking things you've ever seen and it's just about like these wonderful people who are like living their lives and and walking about and and heading down angel's flight to grand central market where they had these they always had these things of ground lamb but then they would shape them into lamb heads and they would put like cherry tomatoes in for the eyes and it's like the greatest thing you've ever seen uh i want that instead of the the pb and j place i want a (laughs) bunch of lambs heads made out of ground lamb meat but i ask a lot
2: the uh, the doctor's house in the Kent McKenzie film Bunker Hill, 1956, the doctor's house became the headquarters for the CRA for their redevelopment that? of that the like, neighborhood.
4: That was just right. That was like two two 238 yeah. South Grand. Yeah. 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 yeah and and uh, that was one of the stalwart survivors. That was a great house, too. They, they should have saved that along with... Although then it just would have been burned anyway if they'd taken it to Heritage Square. Uh, but a lot of them could have been saved along with the castle and the salt box. You know, there was this idea that... Uh, you know, with the city council came out, when the city council finally approved uh, in 1959, and then in September of 61, they started tearing down under the CRA aegis. Um, They said that all the homes were, you know, basically beyond reclamation. You know, there's nothing you could do to them. You know, I moved in 15 years ago. I moved into a 1907 house that was... Has it been 15 years? Yeah, it's been almost 17 years, actually. You know, and the place was Collapsing. And I went in there, and with a little spit and, and elbow grease, you know, I fixed it up. There's no such thing. You know, Colonial Williamsburg, well, I won't even go into that. What? Mount Vernon. Here's a good idea. Mount Vernon, which is, you know, arguably like one of the most famous historic monuments in America, was considered beyond reclamation in the 1930s. And you know who saved Mount Vernon? Little old ladies. Some little old ladies with their pillbox hats and their white gloves, and they said, like, this is unconscionable. I won't have it. I tells you. And I don't know if they're they're old money or boxers, but anyway, that's what they sounded like. And um, they... uh, So all of Bunker Hill could have been saved, but, you know, they needed to tear it down so they could build that.
2: What are we learning today that we did not know, say, in 1974, about Bunker Hill? And I I, want to get back to the topography, but just... Before we get into the topography, oh, because topography. We're, we're still making a, this, this nice little circle. You know, the notion that Bunker Hill is filled with Victorian houses,
4: that's true, but what about the mission revivals? Oh, uh, well, you know, Bunker Hill had a lot of great gingerbread, had a lot of scroll work, had the, the verandas and the cupolas and all the good stuff, uh, and the corner towers. Everything we equate with, um, had some great east lakes like the Brousseau. It had certainly a profusion of magnificent Queen Anne's. Um, but there was a, just as the sort of well-to-do began to make their march to the sea um, in the n- mid-90s, uh, by about the turn of the century, you started seeing an apartment boom. Uh, and these are high-end apartments, but a lot of them were done in sort of like, you know, French Renaissance, and uh, but most were done in this mission style with the crenellated, oh God, then there was uh, the Lovejoy, which had a crenellated parapet, uh, which made it look like a medieval castle Uh, but a great deal of this wonderful mission architecture which as we know is the yeah well then the the mission apartments right down here at 2nd and Olive Gordon's pointing to Um, but there was also you know William Woolett designed you know the 1949 um, playground for kids at like 2nd and Hope there was a bunch of modernism up here right over here at uh, 141 was it 144 South Grand right where I'm pointing over there uh, there was an amazing like streamlined modern uh apartment comp like I think a four unit the uh, Angel's Flight Cafe down here that had this great curved glass brick you know so the idea that like they're saying like well nothing was built there after 1902 and it's all so old I mean you know, when they came out and they said nothing had been built there since 1919 the predominant you know 1919 was the cut date nothing built after that uh, that was in like 1959 that's like saying that's what is that 40 years that's like saying now that like we should get rid of everything before 1977 uh, yeah I was going to say yeah we could down of the uh, security first bank and the uh, Union Bank, and you know it, it, it was absurd. It was, but it was all it was, it was, it was political. It was first they were going to get rid of uh, slums uh, to save the people. It's just like the old, you know, you got to burn the village to save it. And we learned out of Vietnam. Uh, And then that got sort of co-opted in the uh, anti-communist hysteria of the early 50s. People were like, well, we can't have socialized housing. That's terrible. And that's what happened in uh, Chavez Ravine, which is why we put the ballpark there. Um, But it's also what happened here, which is why we ended up having a bunch of banks. Although, to their credit, they did put in, you know, by 1980, uh, Angeles Plaza opens. These poor old people were, I mean, if you're elderly in the 60s, you're elderly. Uh, and in the early 1960s they get kicked out, and they said, "Oh, we'll build it in like a couple of years. You'll come back. You'll only be a hundred then." Uh, and it wasn't for another, you know, twenty years uh, that you know, after these people were dispersed, that they opened up Angeles Plaza. Um, I'm sorry, where were we going with this? Topography. Topography. We we are we are. This Bunker, is this Bunker is Bunker Hill Avenue, wait, which wait, is just wait. that way. The, I, I'm going to interrupt. Do,
2: do people want to hear this? So my birthday bus last year on the drive back, on the twenty minute drive back, you you wrote. The first introduction for your book mm. during the slideshow so I'm, I'm at, to i 'm looking at that I typed up the notes and sent them to you and i 've saved it on my hard drive and it 's also in my archive of my email so i 'll send it to you again, <laughs> but
4: awesome.
2: that 's okay because this is this is another draft of your introduction to your book on Bunker hill so so let
4: 's get back to topography well let 's see well, you wanted to talk well, one of the things that happened you wanted to talk you mentioned tunnels, yeah, and uh, so the topography is very very different now because there used to be a giant hill running this way. It would go up from Olive to Grand, all the way up to Bunker Hill Avenue, and all of that got sliced off. So people can't get a feeling as to how lofty Bunker Hill was, but also how isolated uh, it was for a lot of people because of the tunnels, because of just here we had the two tunnels that went through Hill Street one block over here, the Broadway Tunnel, and then they tunneled all the way through Fort Moore. These are tunnels that are gone now. The entire hills through which they tunneled are gone now. You know, court flight, just like Angel's flight, court flight ran up, you know, a couple hundred feet up the side of a hill that is as flat as Nebraska at this point. Um, So
2: So tell us so if we're standing at 3rd and Broadway, we're in front of the Bradbury building. Mm -hmm. Bradbury's on our right, Grand Central Market's on our left, the Homer Laughlin building. These are two great examples of 19th century Los Angeles. We're looking north.
4: It's flat. What what used to be there? Well, from there, if you're on Broadway, you'd be looking straight up past the uh, Hall of Justice. That's where they... uh 19-1? No, it was 99. Uh, and I think it opened in 1900. They opened up the Broadway uh, Tunnel, um, which is the one that had that great metal staircase up it. And that ran all the way through uh, to Sunset uh, under Fort Moore. Um, if you went through that, then you can go through Broadway Tunnel Number 2. But... Uh, so, so the, that, the, that, that, that's also going. also if you, well. If you're standing right there at Third, and you're looking up Broadway, you'd see the Broadway Tunnel. If you walked up to hill, you'd see the Twin Bores. Right. So, so let's One so let's let, wait,
2: let's do that. So let's walk through Grand Central. We'll get we'll get some yeah. ice cream. Let's do
4: that. Let's and get, we'll get some get, it, we'll,
2: get some lamb head. <laughs> <laughs> We'll walk out onto Hill Street, and we'll be at Third and Hill. We'll be looking up. Angels Flight is to our left. The Angels Flight funicular is to mm-hmm. our left. We're standing in front of the FP Fay Building yeah. at Third and Hill, and Is we're looking. Denison Farwell. Denison Farwell.
4: If we're looking north on a Hill. What would we see then? Well, if you're looking north on a Hill, then you're going to look through the twin mm-hmm. bores of the. I think the they put in the train tunnel, I think in 1909, and uh, then did an automobile tunnel next to it in 1913. Uh, and it's just above that. That's where there were some bench That's where the Ansel Adams photograph of the Altar cockers sitting right. there, looking out over the world, uh, looking down Hill Street was. Um, and then, if you faced straight on, you would see up Angel's Flight, and you would see the hill sort of, you know, ascend up into the clouds. Depending on what year it was, you'd either see the Crocker Mansion up there or the Elks Lodge if it was after 1910. Um, also, a stalwart that stayed all the way till like '62. Perfect. And so it
2: seems to me like we're talking about places that are a lot taller than the current Bunker Hill is. So this, this takes us, so when Gordon Patterson talks about the castle and the salt box being in Grand, uh, Wells Fargo Plaza, he's really talking about the houses being about 30, 40 feet higher than the current level
4: of Grand Avenue right now. Yeah, when you figure if you if you take Angel's Flight all the way up and you step out there, you'll notice that, you know, most of the streetscape below it is, you know, 30 feet below. So it's actually good to go up Angel's Flight and stand up there. It'll give you an idea of what it was like to be at Olive and uh in Third, and Olive was one of the lowest parts of the hill because from there it kept ascending right. up towards Bunker Hill. Avenue. So so let's
2: do that. So this is so now we're coming around to where I want to be. Angel's Flight is at Third and Hill. It runs up the face of the hill to the west. It's torn down in 1970. It's 2017. It's September 4, 2017. Angel's Flight has been moved half a block down on Hill Street. I want you, when you stand on the platform where the station house is, you correctly point out it's built about 30 feet above the Watercourt, California Plaza
4: area. That's because that part of Olive used to be about 30 feet higher. So I want you... I think it's... uh, I mean, the tracks are 325 feet. What they could have done if they just wanted to take it straight up to the street is lop off, you know, 40 feet of track, but that would be evil and absurd. Um, So you're saying you wanted me to, what, to... So so I want you to give us a sense, then. We've, We've got
2: a sense of Third and Hill before they took down Angel's Flight. What used to be where the gateway to Angel's Flight is now? That was that, that, that. was a parking lot. That's why
4: they they used it, because in, in, the, in the 90s it was a parking lot. Yeah, of course. Um, that's where you can see, I guess that's in the sort of center portion of that Angel's Knoll. Is yeah. that what it's called? Uh, that was all a strip of amazing, and you can still see the retaining walls there now of these, you know, late 19th century, early 20th century buildings. Um, one of them was the John Parkinson-designed University Club, which is right there. Um, and so you had these sort of l- low-ish, to our eyes now, uh, you know, four-, five-story, uh, wonderful brick structures, a lot of them after the 1949 parapet Ordinance had had a lot of their um, uh, ornament removed, but you could still see that they were these great, like, Beaux-Arts buildings. Um, down, if you look down to the corner of 4th and Hill, uh, there was a 13-story height limit, white glazed tile uh, building called the Black Building, which is a white building, yeah. it was called the Black Building. Um, I think that maybe may have been Abram Edelman all along Hill Street. Everything was built by like this high-end architects. There was Parkinson. There was Edelman. Uh, there was Train and Williams. Uh, there was Dennison Farwell. Um, on the other side of Fourth Street was the Wright and Calendar Building, which is another you know 13-story height limit, uh, amazing Beaux-Arts building. Um, Hill Street was very bustling. Now we have the you know Grand Central Market in sort of a sea of of parking lots that and were not parking and, lots across And, the and
2: Nathan in in our day in our day when we were young men when we first started fighting and despising each other in our early days of our friendship good times um, um these these Victorian uh residency hotels and offices on Hill Street were still standing 7
4: uh, 87 88 there were there were still a couple oh, of them oh, well, left the, yeah like the um before the demolition of the FP Fay the um there, there was an old hotel there that was the scene of uh, several grisly serial killings um, that was still there yeah there was well I mean all I mean all through um, like South Park and uh, west of Bunker Hill and stuff like that it was just a sea of like three four five story brick like twelve unit 1908 amazing oh, that's
2: another podcast that's another, yeah. that's another podcast yeah a lot of so, these things were still
4: there still
2: so useful. so let's let's wrap let's bring this on home so We're we're sitting atop what is left of Bunker Hill at the Colburn School. Um, Angel's Flight has reopened, though it's temporarily out of service (laughs) for mechanical failure. You put a man
4: on the moon, but oh my God, Nathan!
2: Tell us, tell us why you're so happy about Angel's Flight being saved, thanks to the good work of the Office of the Mayor and ACS and Sensor Engineering.
4: The office of the mayor. Oh, public-private partnerships—they're adorable. Um, I'm happy because there's, uh, you know, Angels Flight is kind of the spark of a, a little remembered trope uh, called Yankee ingenuity. And here was this damn Yankee, Colonel James Ward Eddy, and he comes out here. He's 69 years old. He's widowed. He's just you know he's some schmuck, and he comes out and he says like, "I know what these people need. They need a railroad," and that really shows L.A. at her best. And and also the fact that the city didn't get in the way of them. The city said, look, okay, you can't have a monopoly, so you've got to like put up stairs. And they said, okay. Then in four months, they got all the permits done and stuff like that, and they opened the thing, and the first person to write it is uh, Meredith Snyder, the mayor. Right. Um, and uh, so, it, like I said, it, it just shows you know L.A. at her best and brightest, where people could do like genius things. And I think there's some sort of atavistic element to it where we need to connect to these wonderful old pieces of, uh, you know, you can look at it as like some clattering black and orange anachronism if you like, but I still see it as like an integral part of LA where, you know, if we have some sort of ancestral need to connect with how our uh, forebears used to work and play and love and dance and sing and travel tiny trains and stuff like that, um, we would be much poorer today if it were Gone, or if it were just still standing there, um, inert. I mean, it was certainly a unusually poor public relations. Like, the greatest public relations this town has ever had was that Dan La La Land movie. And one of the things that happened was you had, like, a line of people, like, they, they see it. They're in, like, who knows where? Uzbekistan. They see La La Land. They come out here to go ride Angel's Flight because, you know, the right. stars of the movie did it, and they stand <laughs> up there and they're like, oh. It's close. Like, they can't figure out the Edwardian technology to make. <laughs> cars go back and forth you know and it you know it's unbelievable it's, it's, it was just and the fact that you know they're Olivet and in Sinai you know is you've got you've got God descending from the heavens on Sinai you have Christ ascending to the heavens and Olivet, and like there there's just there's something biblically off kilter there just not having them do what they need to do and I won't have that okay but they're back and, and it's going to be okay yeah. they're going
2: it's back so so nathan um you've you've just written another you've just given a monologue on your another draft <laughs> of the introduction to your book on bunker hill which we all anxiously and at this point i am anxious cuz i have like six no i'm anxious uh-huh. because i have like six checks from you each for $10,000 <laughs> <that, laughs> You keep telling me I get to cash I if, you, to don't, cash if, if don't you don't if you don't finish time. the book, and that's it's like every year you give me a check for ten thousand dollars and tell me not to cash it. Until so, anyway, so I'm I'm anxious as these checks sit in my desk and I have to destroy them. Um, I I want you to tell us about when your book's going to be done.
4: Tomorrow. <laughs> well, the uh, the book proposal is coming along gangbusters, and I just need to finish it by the end of. The year. Okay. Because, um, you, know, you know how these things work. It's like you start doing the book proposal. No, and you're, don't. Know and you're, how, and you're, no, adding don't. In, you're adding in images. And you're adding, pretty soon you're just going to have the whole damn book. So, But anyway, if I could just get the proposal done, and I send it off to fill-in-the-blank publishing company, um, then i will be... See, if I was on a deadline, for God's sake. <laughs> <laughs> what kind see, of deadline
2: do you want to be on, Nathan?
4: Uh, with a publisher lady who looks like Virginia Jansen like whipping me I don't know I have all sorts of strange ideas okay does Virginia <laughs> listen to the podcast yes she does hi Virginia
2: <laughs> we miss you okay so Nathan um I think your black that.
4: leather driving gloves
2: Nathan, I think um, I think that Angels Flight is a good paradigm for you to look to to finish your, your novel. If they can bring back Angels Flight. I can finish the damn yeah. Yeah. So Nathan, you're you're very erudite and eloquent on the subject of Bunker Hill and Angels Flight, and I think everyone listening will agree. You just need to finish your book because yeah. you, you, you you don't need to organize the photos by date or color anymore. It's just time to finish the book, and I want you to leave us with a closing thought. On what people should look for the most when they write Angel's Flight?
4: Oh, should they look for the most?
2: Yeah, what's a salient aspect? A, a salient aspect to you, which is not obvious to everyone. Right. Something that's well, changed. Something that's there now. Like maybe 1901. What was yeah. there
4: that's not there I mean, there's, now? There's, oh, there's so much. I mean, <laughs> as you know, Gordon is already famously told the story about, like, looking at the cars and they're about to crash and then they split off and you fly off into space and all that stuff. I would say rather than looking for something, because there's a ton of stuff I love to look at, I love to look at the... I have a Hotel Clark fetish, and I always like to peer at it uh, from Angel's Flight, because that's my favorite vantage point. But I would say actually close your eyes, and which is tough for me to do as a Scopophile, but once in a while I have to actually close my eyes and just listen. Uh... I love the the, the vibration of the thing. I love the clattering of the tracks. I love the smells of the gear oil. You know, there's all... You know, it's it's a full sensory experience. And and that's what I love about it. I wish it was a little more clattery. I think they made it a little too smooth and too quiet. Yeah, I noticed that. Um, But still, it's as close as we can get to 1901 uh, as you can get for a buck. I mean, come on. That's... That's the greatest deal in town. Until your book comes up. That's right. <laughs> Bye today. Two for one, today only.
1: Nathan, thank you very Sunshine. much. Thank you. My name is Bob Schuler. I'm in Irvine, California, and you're listening to You Can't Eat the Sunshine.
2: And we're done. I'd like to thank everyone for listening to our podcast, You Can't Eat the Sunshine, for the month of September 2017. Our guests this month were Cici DeVere. She is the author of French Town Confidential, and will be hosting our monthly Lava Sunday Salon this month about the very subject, French Los Angeles. We also interviewed our near and dear friend, Nathan Marsak, better known as the Cranky Preservationist. He spoke to us today about... The Lost Topography of Old Bunker Hill, as that was sort of a segue into a discussion of Angel's Flight, which is the last remnant of that lost topography of Bunker Hill. So I want to thank both of them. They're fantastic interviews. Uh, Kim, it's now your job to tell us about the feedback loop, because we love to hear from people.
0: We sure do. and
2: oh, and, and before you, and, and when you're done telling people how we can hear from them? Give some highlights of feedback Nathan gets as the cranky
0: preservationist. (laughs) Yeah, and gets think it's a lot of terrific feedback. We love to hear from you. You can send us an email through the Esoteric contact link or at you can hit the sunshine. You can hit the sunshine at gmail.com. You can review the podcast on iTunes if you're listening over there. That helps other people find it. And of course, you can join us at one of the Lava Sunday salons, the forensic science seminars, or on the Esoteric bus. Yes, we do give bus tours. And let us know you're a listener. It's always nice to hear someone say, "I know those voices." And uh, as for the cranky preservationist, his latest comment on the YouTube channel was, "You're stupid, but I was entertained." And I think you can ask for no better tribute when you're not stupid, but you are entertaining to have someone take their time to type that out.
2: Thank you, Kim. Thank you, thank you, Nathan. Mm-hmm. All right, Kim. We're uh, in the home stretch here. This is the this is the part of the the podcast show where you tell us about. Upcoming bus tours, so people can buy tickets and get on the bus. And so, let's look ahead through the end of. We're gonna look ahead. Yeah. For the month of September, October, and November.
0: And when are we publishing this podcast?
2: We're publishing it. Um, we're, we're we're publishing it before that. Oh, you mean I've forgotten a tour? Yeah, I have. I have. I've forgotten the... Oh, I know what it
0: is. Okay. So, uh, upcoming tours include Hotel Horrors and Main Street Vice, which is uh, September the 16th. That is our downtown double feature, true crime, incredible time capsule buildings. And those are endangered these days. Uh, The redevelopment of downtown is, of course, a juggernaut. Things are changing all the time. It's mostly southern downtown these days, which is uh, transforming. But the buildings that we really care about, the ones that are completely untouched since about 1906, some of those are on the market. Gosh, all of them are on the market. So get on the bus while you still can and see these spaces before somebody paints them blue. We have a special event coming up on the 23rd of September. That's the 1910 bombing of the Los Angeles Times tour with Detective Mike Digby. That's when we're going to follow in the footsteps of this incredible investigation into labor agitators who perhaps accidentally killed a number of employees of the LA Times when they set off a dynamite bomb in Ink Alley in the middle of the night and uh, caused a massive explosion. And the interesting thing about this bus tour is Mike Digby, in his training, of young arson investigators, uses this case and his incredibly deep research into how it was investigated in the aftermath of the 1910 bombing. He puts this data in front of his students and lets them use 21st century techniques and um, theories about criminology to try to solve the case. So that's how we're going to handle it as a bus tour. We're going to go to these historic spaces and we're going to have sort of a two-tiered look at the investigation as it was actually um, conducted in the late Edwardian era, and how it would be conducted today. At the end of September, on the 30th, it is my Hollywood Crime Bus Tour, which includes some wonderful architectural details, like we are, I'm proud to say, the only tour company allowed to walk through crossroads of the world. Oh, I have got a cinder. Yeah, I know, you got to follow up on that. The astonishing, um, I guess you'd call it a programmatic shopping destination. It, it, it it's a, It is a building in the center, by Robert Dural, which is meant to represent a cruise ship, and surrounding it are the buildings of the world. It, it is a very noir location. It inspired Raymond Chandler in his early fiction. It is incredibly beautiful. It has stories, and so does Hollywood. And by the way, if you've taken this tour before, I know some of our regulars like to get on the bus again, and they especially like to hear their new things happening. I want to have more time off the bus and more face-to-face contact with you, my gentle riders. So I've found a bunch of new cases, including the weirdest suicide ever to take place in the world, not just in Hollywood. This is going to bl- this blew my mind. It's going to blow yours. Once you hear this story, your life will be changed. So that's the Hollywood tour. You like that, Richard? I like yeah. It. Yeah. October 7th is our Real Black Dahlia tour it is our most popular crime bus tour the tour that not asks not who killed Beth Short although obviously everyone wants to know but who was she? why do we still care about this drifter this, this young 22 year old liar and troublemaker who uh, managed to put herself in harm's way and whose still unsolved murder remains an open case and uh, subject of great fascination there is a brand new book by Pew Eatwell about the case coming out that very week. So, of course, we will be talking about that as well. And it is uh, bound to be a full and expansive excursion from downtown to Limerick Park. We'd love to see you there. October 14th, it is our Echo Park Book of the Dead tour, which, in addition to some weird and wonderful crimes, includes a stop at Sister Amy Semble McPherson's House Museum, this incredibly passionate, influential, and troubled and scandalous evangelist is one of the great Angelinos, and her Spanish Colonial Revival home includes the most beautiful bathroom in Los Angeles. And you can see it, but not use it. October 21st, it's In a Lonely Place, our Raymond Chandler tour. We will begin downtown. Raymond Chandler is a young oil company executive learning about just how badly behaved the rich are, and and the crimes that they get into, and then heading out to Hollywood where he reinvents himself as a screenwriter in the 1940s, plus some things that we've discovered about Raymond Chandler that don't exist in any of his biographies because we cover the waterfront. Well, we don't, but we've learned things, so get on that bus and learn them too. Some wonderful art deco... uh, locations as well. A brand new crime bus tour I am writing it. It will debut for the Halloween weekend October 28th. It's called the Wilshire Boulevard Death Trip. The simplest route I have ever written for a crime bus tour. It is filled it's 10,000 years of terror because bad things happened to megafauna (laughs) on this tour, But there's also some really weird crimes, some fantastic buildings, some of which are deeply daffy, uh, a little programmatic architecture to delight you, and, uh, yeah, some really dark stuff. So Wilshire Boulevard death trip. It'll be a little funky because it's a brand-new tour, but my hope is that we will blow your mind. That's my job. Weird West Adams is November 4th. It is a crime bus tour that includes a social justice component. It's one of these tours we wrote a few years ago that just become more and more important in Donald Trump's America, which is our America, too, because we're talking about um, racial covenants in real estate and how some really right-on people right here in well Sugar Hill, West Adams, Hill. Los Angeles, were able to take these uh, really nasty laws into the courts and change the way that real estate functions nationwide so that you cannot exclude people by the color of their skin or the makeup of their blood. And also we will go through Rosedale Cemetery, go visit some of our dear friends who live up on the hill, and, you know, there's pretty weird stories on that tour. I like it. Eastside Babylon, though, is my most unhinged crime bus tour. It rolls on November 11th, and uh, that's the only crime bus tour that includes a walk through Evergreen Cemetery to visit the Carnival Graves and stops at the giant tamale because we like daffy buildings and zero killers. November eighteenth is our Charles Bukowski tour. Richard, you've written that tour. Um, it is PG thirteen. It is about finding the voice within yourself. That is, is great. It PG-13 well, maybe I don't know.
3: Maybe,
0: R. maybe it's R. But you were, ta- you were talking to high school teachers, thinking about bringing some literary students oh, on that bus. It can be. Yeah, it can be. I, yeah, I, it can yeah. be. I mean, it's, it's not about being a wild man it's 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 about
2: a salacious
0: tour richard you're not even talking into the mic it's not a salacious tour it's a lovely tour and it's a tour about preservation something that bukowski cared about he saw the last olympics and how east hollywood was terribly damaged by the gentrification that the city pushed through because they were so excited about bringing in three weeks of visitors well here we go again and finally, Richard, you have your birthday bus. It is a never-to-be-repeated bus adventure. We do it every year, the Saturday um, the Saturday after Thanksgiving. It is on the 25th of November. It is an all-day excursion. It includes um, an Indian buffet in the town of Lake Forest. We'll be visiting a 19th-century eucalyptus grove that is one of the most iconic Southern California spaces I've ever been to, and we've just discovered it. We'll be talking about William Pereira's incredibly influential city planning and university planning. We're going to go to two very beautiful, very important uh, social institutions, the Metropolitan State Hospital in Norwalk and the old Downey Poor Farm. Um, I guess we'll call that Rancho Los Amigos. Rancho that's its Los new Amigos. new name that's slated for redevelopment, some very beautiful, decaying spaces. And that's going to be a great day out, and I hope that our regulars will be joining us. I know they will. That's always a full bus, and I look forward to
1: it.
2: Okay, you did it, Coop. You did it. I want to, I want to thank you. You brought us home. I want to thank everyone at home for listening. I want to encourage you to continue to listen, and I want to remind you...
1: You can't eat the sunshine. You can't eat the sunshine, but you can make a beeline for the best of the coastline. La, 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 la. Skid Row, Solano Canyon, Doria, and Pico Union, the long lost neighborhood called hermina Between South Pass and Highland, Hart Grand Central Park. It is divine. You can't eat the sunshine, but it's a gold mine.